open to Ruth. We'll look at uh, chapter 4, verses 13 to 22 this morning. Ruth 4, 13 to 22. So we are in a um, uh, series this Advent, um, talking about the women who appear in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the genealogy that appears in Matthew's gospel right at the beginning, Matthew 1. Uh, it includes five women, and there are um, five Sundays uh, that we're going to look at the lives of these women, the lives of the people in their lives, and the, the circumstances around, around, surrounding their lives, and uh, God's mercy and grace to them and to the people around them. Um, and these women all have uh, certain things in common. They're all uh, marginalized. They're all outsiders. They're all um, at least uh, suspected of um, sexual impurity, sexual immorality. You know, their, their love life is called into question, uh, usually for good reason. Uh, usually uh, they're not so great people. And just the fact that they're women uh, showing up in the genealogy. Uh, in ancient cultures, women don't show up in genealogies, and uh, women are, are treated as uh, second-class citizens to men. So um, uh, everything about these women uh, puts them on the outside. And, and they'd be the kind of people who are on the outside uh, looking in, and yet they've been brought in. They've been brought all the way in. Uh, brought into the line of Jesus Christ himself, the, um, the ancestry of uh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So uh, this morning we're looking at Ruth. <clears throat> I think this is the third of the series. And so uh, Ruth is especially an outsider <clears throat> because she is a Gentile. Uh, along with all those other things we've already talked about, she's, uh, she's not part of the Jewish community by birth. She's not part of, she doesn't um, start off there geographically, she doesn't start off there ethnically, she's a complete outsider uh, by her nationality. She's from uh, Moab, which is a neighboring um, nation that uh, is not on friendly terms with Israel at the time when uh, Ruth took place, the, the events in the book of Ruth took place. Uh, she's from a nation of, of the enemies of God. She's from a nation of the enemies of God's people. And uh, so she's a total outsider. She's an outsider who's brought in, again, all the way in, um, in order to care for other outsiders and to bring them in. So uh, that's what we'll look at this morning as we, um, we read. We'll, we'll, look at, uh, we'll, we'll just read the end of the book of Ruth, and then we'll kind of look at her whole story, um, at least a summary version of it. So let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we're uh, always, when we reflect on it, in need of your help. We're always in a position where um, we need you to help us to understand more about you, understand more of your word, understand more of your dealings with your people, your dealings with us, and uh, we need to understand more about ourselves. And we pray that all of this would be true as we consider your word this morning. We pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Ruth 4, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, who is uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life 
and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, So... Those of you who know us know that we have four kids, and they have strange names, uh, right? uh, Ransom, Justice, Evangeline, and Jubilee. Uh, we gave them their, their names uh, for specific purposes, and that's something that you see uh, very frequently in the scriptures is people naming their children, people taking names um, for the significance of what the name means, for the, you know, the meaning of the word itself. A lot of times names sound a lot like words that uh, mean something profound, or a lot of times names really are just that word that means something profound. So, like, for example, Ransom, our oldest son, we <clears throat> named him um, the, the, the Latin word for uh, redemption or redeemer, the one you, you pay the price. It's the price paid uh, for, uh, to, to set slaves free. And that's, uh, he's named, in a sense, after Jesus. I mean, that's who Jesus is. He came... Uh, as it says in the Gospels, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to, to exchange his life, to set people free from uh, sin and from hell and from death itself. And so uh, you see that. <clears throat> it's just an example of uh, what you see all over the place. If you're reading, especially in the Old Testament, if you look at names, uh, you, you see these names that appear strange or that appear to have some significance. They probably do, and your Bible probably points out what that name means somewhere in the footnotes, or uh, you can look it up in a, <clears throat> a study Bible or a commentary or even just online. But the names that we see in the beginning, uh, throughout really the book of Ruth, but you see several names that are right at the beginning, uh, they all have significance, and they all shape the way that this story is told. If you uh, have a Bible and you turn back to Ruth 1, I'll read the first part of it. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man in Bethlehem, in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Uh, They were from Bethlehem in Judah. So the names that we see here are interesting, and they do set the stage for the story um, as we go forward. The name of the man and his wife uh, those are good, strong names. They're fine names. Elimelech means God is king. That's true and right, and it'd be great to be named that just as a reminder, a daily reminder. Anybody, anytime anybody says your name, uh, they, they're basically proclaiming God is king. And then Naomi, whose wife, uh, who's Elimelech's wife, whose name means pleasant, right? Uh, pleasant, delightful, satisfied, pleasant. Uh, those are good names. Malon and Kilion are not good names. Uh, They named their children something to the effect of uh, sick and weak and empty and ending, right? So um, they're 
their names conjure the, the concept of it, this family isn't going anywhere. This family is going to wither on the, and, and die on the vine. Uh, the story here uh, probably is not going to have much to do with these two young men. It just You get this sense of finality and ending and, and weakness with the names of these children. <clears throat> and it's uh, set in the time when the judges ruled. Now, the judges in our, um, in our Bibles comes uh, right before the book of Ruth. And if you uh, read through the book of Judges, you probably know it's a fairly depressing story. There's, there's a, a lot of the same kind of a cycle happening, is that um, the, the people of Israel had just come into the land. It's the promised land. It's the wonderful, it's the, the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to his people before, that um, they were going to dwell in this land that was flowing with milk and honey, right? It's this beautiful, wonderful land. And it's, it's a lot like, it's a picture of heaven for us. It's a picture that... Uh, that God, when he fulfills all of his promises, what's coming to you in the end, it's going to be good news. God likes stories with happy endings. Um, and this was, I mean, in a sense, they, they've achieved this happy ending because Joshua led them into the land. They conquered the people for the most part. They've spread out. They've started to enjoy the fruits of the land. <coughs> and then Judges happens. And it said, I mean, kind of a characteristic verse that, uh, or, or phrase that keeps showing up over and over again in, in the book of Judges is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, so, so even though they had promised, they made many promises to follow God and do whatever he said and be obedient and enjoy relationship with him in this new land that he's, I mean, he's taken them to heaven pretty much. Um, even though that's the case, they constantly fell into rebellion and they constantly sin against God. And the result of it was this cycle of when, when they do that, God brings in their enemies, these foreigners, these nations who are surrounding them. He brings them in and oppresses his own people until they cry out for deliverance. And then when they, it's, it's pretty frequent for us to understand it this way. You know, your relationship with God gets a lot better when things are hard, right? Things were hard. Circumstances were bad for these people. And so they cried out for help. They cried to God for his mercy, and he would send a judge. And that's the book of Judges is named uh, for that. So a judge would come in, and he would um, drive out the oppressors and set up a time where there'd be health again in the land. And then immediately the people would fall into sin. And, you know, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the constant theme of the book of Judges. And that's, what, that's when this is taking place. Right? This is taking place during that time uh, when there's no king to give direction. There's no, um, there's no faithfulness among the people. And so it's just not a pretty picture. You start off with uh, the, the people being in... Um, this time, especially you see in the book of Judges, there's a time when the people of Moab, their immediate neighbors to the east, just the other side of the Jordan, uh, Moab, the king of Moab, comes and oppresses Israel for 13 years at one point, right? So it, that's either happening or that has recently happened. When this happened, when, when uh, Ruth takes place and you've got these, this family, they're, they're in the middle of a famine, and they basically, they leave the promised land. They're, they're leaving heaven. They're leaving uh, the place where God has brought his people, where he has good plans for his people to prosper them. They've, they're, in a sense, they're leaving God himself to go out and um, see if the grass is greener in the land where, um, 
where their enemies are, where their oppressors are. Right? They go to Moab, it says. Uh, and so a common parallel for us today is if you get a family who goes to church, and they're generally good people, maybe their kids are a little bit rebellious, whatever. I mean, that's all of us here, right? Um, but uh, they don't have a really strong relationship with God, and so they don't really consider things. Like if they're going to relocate, if they're going to relocate across the country for financial reasons, they don't really ask the question whether there's a church there before they move, right? If they're going to uh, make a big move or any kind of big life transition, right? Some big next step in the life of this family, and they don't pray about it. They don't think about it in terms of, like, how does this affect my relationship with God, right? And that's what this family is doing. They're, in a sense, they're walking away from God as they leave the promised land to relocate to Moab. <clears throat> now, uh, what happens there is that things get worse because the grass is not greener out there, right? This family begins to fall apart. The father dies, the sons take wives, and they're married for, it sounds like, about 10 years, but uh, their wives don't have any children. Maybe they're barren, and then the sons die, right? So Naomi is left uh, on her own in the country where uh, these people have been oppressing her people. She's left with foreigners for daughters-in-law, uh, and she's got nothing, right? She's in a tight spot, and uh, so she decides, well, maybe, maybe it is a bit better back, uh, back at home. She's not thinking about it in terms of uh, things are better where God is. She's thinking merely on um, kind of a materialistic level. She heard maybe that there's, there's uh, grain growing again now in Israel, so I'm going to go back. Uh, because she's, she's already turned bitter. She's, somehow, in her rebellion against God, she misses the fact that she's actually been in rebellion against God. It's possible to be among God's people and totally miss the fact that you're actually a rebel against God, that you actually don't care about him, you don't want to involve him in your life, that you don't center your life around him, um, and, and you actually end up walking away from him. She's totally missed that fact, but she's bitter about God, right? And she says, uh, when she gets back to the, the land of Israel, she says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. And you get the idea that she's blaming God for the circumstances of her life, which she was a major contributor to the circumstances of her own life. But um, Naomi now <clears throat> uh, is in a bad spot, and she's, she's going to go back to Israel, and she's got these two daughters-in-law, and she's a really good evangelist. So she says, go back to your gods, right? Don't come with me to where the one true God is worshipped, go back to your gods, right? We're family, but just go back to your family, your real family and your real gods, right? Um, and uh, <clears throat> Orpah is one of the daughters-in-law, uh, and she walks out of the story, and she walks out of the memory of history. People can't even get her name right, right? Uh, Oprah was supposed to be named Orpah. Uh, it's random bit of information there for you, but uh, Orpah, she, she said, okay, she was maybe crying a little bit, but she, she, went, she went home to her family and to her gods, but, but Ruth is this Moabite woman who, um, who basically pledges her life to her bitter mother-in-law, right? She gives up on potential prospects. She's still a young woman. She lives among her own people. It wouldn't be hard for her to have a life there, to find a husband, 
to take care of her. And, um, uh, but she gives up on prospects to stick with this woman whose name means pleasant, but she's really unpleasant, uh, who is bitter. Um, and in doing so, I mean, she commits herself. She says, where you go, I'm going to go. Uh, my life is going to be connected to your life. Your God is going to be my God. And I'll go with you even to death. I mean, these are the kinds of things that you say to somebody that you're marrying, right? This is the, the kind of thing, the, the pledge you make, the vow you make to a spouse at your, at your wedding. She gives her life fully in this devotion, this commitment. And in a sense, we know it's, it's like a, it's a profession of faith. I mean, she's saying, your God, I want your God to be my God. And I want to be where his people are and with you, and I, I want to take care of you. So Ruth, right off the bat, looks like a great, beautiful, uh, helpful, gracious, kind uh, woman from the beginning, which is a surprise. I mean, she goes with Naomi, and she goes into a foreign land for her. She goes to face loneliness. I mean, who's going to want to marry her? She's a Moabitess, right? She's one of the enemies. She's one of the people who have oppressed us recently, if not are currently oppressing us. She's an outsider, so she's going to face loneliness. She's probably got the fear of rejection from all the people. She, she really does face rejection even from Naomi because when, she, when Ruth says to Naomi, I'm with you, I'm not going to leave you, I'm going with you to the bitter end, right? Uh, Naomi stops talking to her. That's what the text says. She just... And goes on, right? And so she sticks with her, uh, even though she faces uh, loneliness and rejection by all the people and, and by the person that she's uh, um, trying to be kind to and, and love. And Ruth, you know, the book is named after her. She's kind of the main character of this story, which is a surprise. You know, not only is she in Jesus' genealogy, she gets a whole book about her in the Bible where she's the hero, right? This outsider Gentile woman is the hero, and it's uh, the, the, the parallel that I think of in the Gospels is when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan is a surprising story. It's a shocking story because here the bad guy is the good guy, right? This person's supposed to be the bad guy. Jesus tells the story of, you know, you've got a Jew lying dead on the road, and these people come by, and they don't help him. But the Samaritan comes by, and the Samaritan helps, and the Samaritan gives, and the Samaritan risks, and the Samaritan gets himself dirty and loses money and loses time to help this Jew to recover and, and gain his life back, uh, who's been beaten up and left for dead by robbers. And... Uh, <clears throat> And the surprise is that it's a Samaritan, right? It's the hated outsider. It's the enemy who ends up being the good guy and the hero of Jesus' story, right? That's where the shock is. And that's the same with Ruth. I mean, she's the good guy in this story, but um, you would have looked at her, if you were part of Israel at that time, you would have looked at her as if she's the bad guy, right? You would have just assumed that. She's the Moabitess. Um, <clears throat> there are enemies, it's like today telling, uh, you know, the hero of a Christian story being uh, a radical Muslim, right? Putting together, like J.R.R. Tolkien writing, or C.S. Lewis writing a, a wonderful story that uh, conjures up images of uh, salvation and heroism, and, and the, the main character is a, a radical Muslim, right? The good guy is who we all think is the bad guy. That's what, that, uh, that's what Ruth's story is like. 
and it's shocking. And so she sticks with her. She serves her. She goes, uh, when they get back to Israel, they, they come to this uh, they come back to their land, and it's probably neighboring adjunct uh, fields where it's the end of the, or it's the beginning of the harvest, which means, you know, it's too late to plant crops and try to get uh, food for yourself uh, through the regular farming methods. So um, <clears throat> Naomi, the mother-in-law, sends Ruth and says, go find a field somewhere. You know, maybe there will be a field where you can glean and bring, and so Naomi doesn't do this herself, right? She's clearly capable of making a long-distance journey on foot, but she's maybe depressed, she's bitter, she's angry, she's sulking, she doesn't want to go out and work the field herself, so she sends Ruth out. Ruth's willing to do it. And Ruth goes uh, to the field, and it says, uh, as chance chanced it, is how the, the scripture language literally is, you know, um, as luck would have it, she happened upon the field of Boaz, who was a close, kind of a relative of Limelech, a relative of the family, right? Somebody who, um, as we discover in uh, the end of the story here, is uh, somebody who could really take care of them, as chance chanced it, right? She happened upon this field, and she went there to glean, and gleaning was something that in the Old Testament, in the laws uh, of the Old Testament, was given as a, a help to people who uh, needed big help, right? If you had a field, if you had a field of grain, you're the owner, you're the farmer, uh, you were not supposed to uh, harvest around the edges and the corners, um, and anything that kind of fell out of the sheaves that you were gathering together when you were harvesting and you pack it all into bundles and stuff, you're supposed to leave it there so that the poor of the land could come by and they could do a little work, uh, they could... Um, get a little bit of grain, they could feed themselves by gleaning from the edges of your field or the, the you know, stuff that fell out of the bundles. And so that's what Ruth is doing. It's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Um, God set that up for his people to do. Probably a lot of landowners were reluctant to do it. It's like, you know, owning a business and uh, deliberately giving up some of your profits so that poor people might be able to benefit, making yourself poor for the sake of... Um, uh, other people who had needs and helping them to um, to work and to survive um, <clears throat> through your generosity that way. Uh, so there's probably reluctance on some people's part, but not Boaz, right? Boaz comes and he finds her laboring in the field. She's working hard all day long. The people are impressed with how hard she's working and, and why she's doing it. She's doing it for her mother-in-law. Uh, here's this Moabitess. Everybody's surprised that it's it's uh, so good with this with this young woman. And she's been working hard in the hot sun all day. And Boaz comes and he says, okay, to his, to his guys, he says, all right, well, so, you know, don't forbid her to come behind you and glean. And in fact, you know, take, take some of the uh, grains out of your bundles and leave them on the ground. You know, do some of the work for her and give her extra so that she has plenty. And then he, he brings her to lunch and he feeds her and he sends her home with about 50 pounds worth of grain, Right. Boaz, uh, you see the kindness and the generosity of, uh, of this fellow. And he's probably an older fellow. Uh, he's not a young buck. He's, he's, um, people don't know how old he is. He's, he's an older guy, right? Uh, so maybe kind of a grandfatherly figure. And he's, he's watching out for them. He's taking care of, he's impressed with Ruth, and he gives her uh, a lot of grain to take home. And uh, when she takes it home, Naomi is shocked, and Naomi's... Uh, 
pleasantly surprised to discover, wow, she, she happened upon Boaz's field. Boaz is one of our relatives. He's one of our redeemers. He's one of the people in that ancient culture who uh, relatives could come and they could basically kind of adopt you into their family. If your husband died, if uh, uh, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, the Leverett marriage, you know, if you're if, uh, if you're a woman whose husband died, a close relative would take you as his wife and provide children for you, which would be like your um, retirement plan, right? It's your lifelong security to be able to have children, to be able to have t- people to take care of you and generate wealth for you when you're unable to do so in your older age. And uh, Boaz was somebody who um, was close enough, relative, he could do this and he could really take care of us. This could be our salvation, right? And so Naomi uh, figures this out and uh, takes matters into her own hands, basically, and says, Ruth, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go make a move on this guy. Right? You're going to go when he's, when he's kind of drunk. After a long day of work, you're going to go tonight. You're going to go and uh, take the, the cloak or the blanket, his garment. You're going to take it off of his feet, and you're going to snuggle up right next to him. And uh, you're going to make a move on this guy because you could marry this guy and then I'd be set, right? Um, This guy can take care of us. He can take care of me. And uh, you can go in there and make that happen by making these moves, right? So it's a little bit questionable. It's definitely questionable on Naomi's part. Uh, Ruth does it and she goes uh, when he's asleep. Boaz uh, is is laying there. uh, His heart is glad. He's uh, had good food and good wine to drink and he's been uh, on the threshing floor, working the grain, doing whatever that means. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of a distant experience from uh, my, my regular experience, but uh, they brought the grain into this threshing floor and they, they separated the actual grain from the, the chaff, the stalks and whatnot. And so that's what he'd been doing all day and he's sleeping now. And so she um, says she uncovered his feet and probably, I'm, I'm just going to say, it, it looks pretty honorable on, on her part because she doesn't just go make a move. She doesn't sidle up against him. She doesn't um, deliberately try to wake him up and rouse him from his sleep uh, at a time where she could basically take advantage of him. Um, but she uncovers his feet and says, in the middle of the night he woke up, probably because his feet were cold. And he looks, at, uh, he looks down and who's this woman, you know? Who's this woman who's laying here? And she, she says, you know, um, basically, would you marry me? She says... Spread your garment over me. Take care of me. Like God takes care of his people is basically the language she uses. Take care of me. Um, and, and he says, you know, blessed are you because this last kindness is greater than the first. And he's referring to the way that she's already devoted herself to her mother-in-law, who everybody in the town knows is a bitter woman because she told them, don't call me pleasant anymore. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Everybody in town knows how bitter and angry she is. I know how hard it must be for you to have pledged your life to somebody like that to take care of her and be faithful to her. And that's a great kindness. And this kindness is even greater because in order to take care of her, you're going to marry an old man. You could have gone after the young men. You could have gone after somebody who would give you pleasure, uh, who would take care of you in ways that maybe I can't take care of you. Um, But you came uh, to me to take care of you. And, And he blesses her for that. And he gives her some more grain, and he sends her home before the sun comes up, just so that people don't get the wrong idea. Uh, people probably had the wrong idea, but uh, doesn't look like anything <clears throat> uh, bad happened between them there. And um, he sends her home, 
and she, she talks about it with Naomi, and, and Naomi says, he's, just, just wait, he's going to take care of this today. And so what he does is he goes to the, the gates where the elders are. The people are coming and going out of the city, and <clears throat> he, um, he goes to where lots of business transactions are made and lots of legal uh, sort of proceedings take place in the presence of the elders of the city. And, um, and he, knows, he knows he's a kinsman redeemer. He knows he's somebody who's related, who has the opportunity to basically buy this person out of debt, to buy this person out of certain death, right, to buy this family uh, life for this family through his own wealth. He knows he's that person, but he knows that there's actually somebody uh, one step closer than him. And so he goes to the city gates and he waits for that guy to come by. And that guy doesn't have a name. He, it says in the text, uh, in the English text, he says, come here, friend, come aside here, friend. And sit and talk with me. And the, the word friend, it doesn't mean anything. It, um, it's pelonialmony. It's just like a kind of a babbling way of saying something like, come here, Mr. So-and-so. Um, come here and let's have a discussion. And that's to say, this guy basically passes up on the chance to do something that is so wonderfully good that it would get his name recorded in the Holy Scriptures, and it would get his name in Jesus' genealogy. It would, it would include him in the story of what God is doing in the whole world, to redeem the whole world. And, uh, but this guy's a nobody, because he passes up on it, right? Boaz tells him, look, Elimelech's family's back. Uh, there's a chance to buy the land and, uh, and get that as part of your inheritance. So uh, you're a kinsman redeemer who's closer than me. Uh, you can do that if you want to. And he says, yeah, I'll do it. It sounds great. He says, oh, by the way, there's some stuff that comes along with this. There's women involved, and uh, one of them needs to be taken and married, and one of them needs to uh, have children, and you, you're going to give your name and, and that part of the inheritance to that family. It's not going to be kept for yourself. Uh, it's going to belong with that family. And um, you know, he says, well, I can't impair my own inheritance like that, so I'm out. You can do it. And so he makes the deal, and Boaz uh, uh, publicly is acknowledged for being a really good guy. All the elders say, you know, you are blessed because you're taking care of this family. May, may your family be, uh, be blessed and numerous, right? Uh, and so Boaz then takes Ruth, and sorry, this is in a sense all kind of introductory to our own passage. Um, Boaz takes Ruth, and, and she becomes his wife, right? And uh, they know each other relationally, sexually, and she conceives, and it says the Lord gave her conception. The Lord had apparently withheld this from her before. The assumption was that she was barren before when she didn't have children with Malon or Kilion, whichever one she was married to before back in Moab. But the Lord uh, gave her conception, and it's somewhat miraculous. And uh, she bore a son, and the women then said to Naomi... And the rest of this kind of focuses on Naomi and the transformation that's taken place in her life because of the redemption, because of these beautiful people, because of Boaz in his generosity and Ruth in her faithfulness and her kindness, uh, her, the pledge of her life to take care of Naomi. The, the women say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you, Naomi, without a redeemer. And they're talking about her grandson. They're talking about the one that uh, Ruth bore. This is the one who's going to be to you a restorer of life, this child, this miracle child. 
He's going to be a restorer to, uh, of life and uh, a nourisher of your old age, right? So Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He's the one who um, gives hope to the hopeless. Ruth is um, this one who uh, does what, what Naomi doesn't deserve, like kind of in the face of what she deserves. She gives her this, this loving kindness that just doesn't stop. And the result is this dramatic redemption of Naomi's life, this restoration uh, of life where there was only death and, and hope where there was hopelessness and, um, and a future where there was none and purpose and joy where there was none, right? I mean, she takes the child and lays him on her lap. All of you who have little children, we've got a lot of them being born these days. Uh, you've seen grandma take a little baby and uh, lay, the, lay the little baby on the lap, right? It's a beautiful picture. It's a joyful picture. And it's one that gives her life purpose. Now she's going to be her, the, the little boy's nurse, right? Obed's nurse. She's going to take care of this little boy. And he's going to grow up to be something special. He's, gr- he's, growing, he's already changed her life. He's going to change her life. He's going to take care of her. And, uh, and so there's real redemption, real total redemption of cranky old Naomi, this bitter old woman, right, who had walked away from God, who had no hope really in God. She had made herself an outsider, right? From her actions, from her unbelief, she'd, she'd put herself on the outside. And here was Ruth, who was really an outsider, that God brought in to bring Naomi in, right? To, to restore Naomi through, um, God was doing it through faithful Boaz and through the beautiful outsider, Ruth. And um, this is all, this is all a picture of the way God is working in the world, that he has worked in the world through his son, the miracle child, uh, the one who would be the redeemer, who was born of people like this, who was born to people like this to restore us, to restore life to us, to uh, give us uh, security and an eternal future and hope. Uh, There was no sort of universal Boaz, there was no, uh, nobody who on a, on a global scale could step in and through his uh, sacrificial generosity and through his kindness come into our lives and rescue us from eternal hopelessness, from eternal death, until Jesus Christ came into the world, right? until the one who's our kinsman redeemer came into the world. And um, it said in the... Uh, the New Testament reading, which Suzanne read from Hebrews 2, <clears throat> says, uh, since the children, that's us, just the people in the world, right? Uh, maybe particularly the people of the Jew- Jews, but this applies to us as well. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, right? The Son of God came into the world and he took flesh and blood, real, tangible, historical humanity. He took it to himself in the person of Jesus Christ so that through death, through his own death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver or redeem all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All those whose lives were miserable, 
because for long years we've been just afraid of having no future, afraid of eternal death. This world was in gloom and great darkness for centuries and centuries without hope until the light of the world stepped in and took our flesh and blood to himself so that in his own death he could defeat death. He could defeat the one who had the power of death, who's the devil. He could defeat all of our enemies and give us hope and life that we don't deserve. He, he took our flesh and blood to bring us in, to bring us all the way in, to bring us even into God's very family where God calls us sons and daughters of God. Right? Um, and uh, there's a couple of ancient church fathers that talk about it this way. Irenaeus said that he became... Jesus Christ became what we are, fully human, in order to enable us to become what he is, that is, son of God. He became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is. So he became a kinsman redeemer for us, like Boab. He came into the world. Uh, he, He wasn't, by his original nature, a kinsman redeemer, he came and took on flesh and blood. He came on and took on a finite, created body and soul as a human being in order to redeem us and bring us into God's own family. And Gregory Nazianzen says that what has not been assumed cannot be restored. It's what's united with God that is saved. So in the person of Jesus Christ, divinity and humanity were united forever, once and for all, in one person. And since our humanity has been united to God's divinity in the person of Jesus Christ, our humanity now can be saved. Um, We can be saved like uh, Ruth and like Naomi were saved. Even though I've made a mess of things, right? Even though I've totally botched this humanity thing, even though we've all done it universally without exception, even though we've taken ourselves out of relationship with God, We've made ourselves outsiders. God does not see us as lost causes. He's not writing us off. He's not writing off the world or writing us off as irredeemable. In and of ourselves, not much worth going after probably, right? Um, Not much worth salvaging, but he's the God who comes after us anyway. He comes all the way after us to bring us all the way into his own family. And he did this uh, through his son, Jesus, to make us beautiful, to make us glorious, to make us loving, to make us like himself. The Son of God came into the world and and took on humanity to redeem our humanity and to change us and transform us and to make us beautiful um, like Ruth is beautiful, like this total outsider is made beautiful and brought into God's family. He showed us mercy at great cost to himself. He spared us eternal hopelessness by um, becoming hopeless himself, right? By going to the cross and crying out in despair, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took our hopelessness on himself so that he would give us hope, so that God would never look at us and and turn his face away from us in anger, right? He spared us from death, apart from God. He gave us a new future. He gave us love and joy. He brought us into God's own family. He made us able to give ourselves to others. He he took us and he reshaped us in his own image. He took our humanity and he restored it in his own image. 
and now we are being restored as little redeemers, right? Little Christs, that's what Christian means. Uh, little Christs were made to be like him, to be able to give ourselves to others for their good, even though they don't deserve it. Because we didn't deserve it, but he did it for us anyway. He took our humanity in order to restore it to its full glory. And that means making us loving like he is loving. It says in uh, Isaiah 58, God says, isn't this the fast that I choose? Isn't this kind of the religious, the outworking of your faith that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Isn't it to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, not... uh, when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. This is what we see in the story of uh, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, is these people who are, uh, their lives are ruined, right? This family's life is going nowhere. And they're suffering uh, with poverty, and then in comes the the generous uh, Redeemer who turns everything around for them and makes uh, makes Ruth, even this outsider, this extreme outsider, someone who's on the inside, who goes out and brings Naomi in, right? Who brings even her back into the fold and into the family. And and so there's this application that, um, you know, for us, God has, has stepped into our lives, he stepped into the world through his son, who is our Redeemer. He's one like us. He's one close to us. He's a close relative of ours. He's our kinsman redeemer, and he's changed our lives to be able to, uh, to make us able then to go out and bring others in through our generosity, through our imitation of him. And so, for example, we have opportunities to do that because it's, it's Advent, right? It's Christmas time. We can go um, with ICS and adopt a family where one of these people has gotten out of... Uh, sexual slavery or labor, you know, enslavement. Uh, adopt w- one of these families and give them gifts. These people, uh, when they were called and asked what kind of gifts they would, uh, they would like to receive, some of them responded and said, nobody's ever asked me that before. I've never gotten a gift before. Um, and we have the chance to go and, and take these people who are consummate outsiders in our world and bring them all the way in through our love and through our generosity, the way that it imitates uh, Boaz and Ruth, but the way ultimately it imitates God and our, our great kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, Ruth is a, is a romance story, and it's a true romance story. It's, it's one that is not limited uh, to just two people. It extends to cover the whole world. It's not just between uh, Boaz and Ruth. It's not just between you and God as individuals, right? Uh, this is something, this, this kind of love comes into the world um, to bring the whole world in. And so we're supposed to take the love that we've been given and go out and do that very thing. So let's do that in imitation of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a a beautiful story of um, your people, your grace at work among your people. And we realize uh, and we confess and we pray that you'd help us to understand even more that we 
are by nature outsiders. We belong to the enemies of your people. We belong to uh, your enemies. We are um, by nature as sinners rebels against you and we do not deserve to be brought into your very family and yet you are the kind of God who takes even people like us and brings them all the way in. And we pray that uh, that would sink into our hearts and our minds. It would saturate our lives in a way that, um, that your gracious love, that going to the outsiders and bringing them in, uh, would characterize all of our relationships. That it would uh, even dictate where we spend our time and the people with whom we spend our time and the, the places where we... Um, Give our money and and our resources and our time and energy. We pray that our entire lives would be transformed by your beautiful, generous, kind, and faithful love through Jesus Christ so that other people would see your great love and they would would also be transformed by it and brought in uh, to the great joy of all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.